0: Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com.
1: I felt a little guilty that I have all this and I just saw these people that are, you know, sleeping in the street or in this caravan that's they're trying to get get a new life. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu,
0: storyteller. In 2006, I was working for the WCNC-TV investigative unit in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was part of a team sent to the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona in the hopes to find people migrating to the Carolinas. I was sent with a team because I knew the land, the people, and how to navigate the bureaucratic monster called the wall. I found myself in an Econoline van riding with 15 people from Altar, Mexico, to Sasa Bay, Arizona, to cross into the United States. Along with 15 people traveling was a coyote. Coyote is a colloquial Mexican-Spanish term referring to the practice of people smuggling across the U.S.-Mexico border. Smuggling should not be misinterpreted to mean human trafficking. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, defines smuggling as the importation of people into the United States involving deliberate evasion of immigration laws. In part two of my interview with Morgan Lowe, we pick up talking about crossing the border in Sasebay, the dangers of the border, and what life is like for a reporter to tell these stories in such dangerous and treacherous times. We continue this journey as we examine the institution of the wall and beyond the borders, I remember when um, I was working for a below station, WCNC, out of Charlotte. Yeah, you know, we came down and followed a group coming out down into Mexico. It was a staging ground for where uh, a lot of the uh, the migrants catch up oh, with coyotes. All the time. Altar just there two days ago. Yeah. And I have to say, I I really like Altar. I mean, it's that Catholic church right in the middle is just absolutely beautiful. Um, And I remember, you know, working out a deal where um, they let me into an Econoline van with the Coyote and God must be 15 people in the back. And we were riding along on that dirt road. You know, I was on my knees for what is it? 90 miles My knees were getting destroyed. And as we were riding along, one of the uh, gentlemen, I looked over and he had a, we're trying to find people coming to the Carolinas and he had a a North Carolina shirt on, you know, for basketball. And I looked up and was like, you going to North Carolina? He's like, yep, I'm going to my family. And he spoke really good English. And I, you know, I kind of chatted him up and he finally looked at me and goes, you know why I'm coming here? And I'm like, well, I mean, I'd love for you to tell me. Camera's rolling the whole thing. He said, I'm coming here because I'm willing to do the job you don't want to do. And I'll do it just as happy as anybody else. And then I'll take the money back to my family while I'm trying to pay for my kids so they can have a better education than the one that we're getting right now. Yeah. And you talk about putting that into perspective for a minute and to really think about that. And what happened next to me was that we were stopped about halfway up uh, on our way up to the border for a checkpoint in the Mexicali. were kind of hanging out and um, they walk up and, you know, they got M16s and they're pointing it at us. And, and what I realized is that they were collecting money. They wanted their piece, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, me and the other photographer, you know, we coughed up some cash and, and I remember that M16 pointing straight at me wanting money and, What I realized out of that is that two things. One is, you know, this is a small portion of their travel, you know, that, you know, with guns and bad conditions and packed in vans and, but that also that they are willing to do just about anything, Mm -hmm. anything to do that. And so there's a safety component, there's a desperation component, and then there is just a flat out commitment To do just about anything, it doesn't matter what it is, regardless of what the barriers are, to get across. And that was really very impactful
1: to me. To tell you how things don't change, you know, some things change every day, some things never change. That story that you just told, that was what, like 15 years ago that you did that? Yeah, 15 years ago. Two days ago, I was on that same dirt road, that smuggling trail from Altar to Sasabee. 90-mile dirt road, yep. and we got pulled over by the Mexican military, hauled out of our vehicles at gunpoint, and we didn't have to you know, pay a bribe. We immediately identified ourselves as journalists, which is what I do down there before the people who pull you over have a chance to do something they can't undo. But that same experience yep. that you described 15 years ago just happened to us two days ago. And, and so that is still – that is how it goes down there. It is a, you know, it is a generational life across the border. People are crossing through. There are people who are going to make money off of them legally and illegally and it just keeps happening.
0: How is these narratives that we're trying to tell that exposes the culture of the border so hard to tell? I mean, these are the stories that are having a hard time getting to the mainstream populace. <laughs> but are very much important, a part of the narrative outside of the smuggling and all the other things and the business beh- behind government contracts on walls. Don't you think that's just as important part of the narrative as all the other pieces?
1: They're hard stories to pitch because there's a perception here that uh, that the border is negative and that all people want to hear about is negative parts of immigration and um, and and the negative parts of of what's coming from mexico uh and that's a tough barrier to get out you know get over to cross because you're pitching a story to your bosses who are trying to think of what you know they've got a hundred news stories they can do a day and they've got five people you're going to pick the five most appealing news stories to your viewers and they're not always going to pitch what we call feature stories that don't have a hard edge. They're not going to take those stories and, and, you know, to do a positive story on the board is a feature story. And, uh, there's a perception that people don't want to hear feature stories. They don't want to hear the good news. They, like we said earlier, they don't care when the plane lands. It's only when it crashes that it's news. Um, and, and what I try to do, and what I, I try to teach our younger reporters to do, is to even when you're doing a harder news story, include some feature elements to it. Start with a, like I said, the positive or the reality, then do the negative, and then end with you know something that shows the area on the border if it's a border story in in the the reality light. And there is a big, there's a big disconnect right now with what is really happening on the border and what you see on. CNN or or Fox News or any of these um news networks that don't um you know that aren't in the border communities that are covering them for people who don't live down there and I'll just rattle off a couple of statistics that will tell that will show you in plain light what the reality is compared to the perception the reality is is that there were about 12% of the number of border crossers that that came across last year than there were in the year 2000 so 18 years ago, there were 80, 87, 88% more people crossing the border illegally. It is almost, it's a trickle now. So this perception that we're being invaded is completely false. And so that's a, a real challenge for reporters down here to get across. Um, you can see the statistics on it. And some people don't believe statistics. These are Border Patrol statistics. Or you can go down to my family's ranch. When you and I were down there in the early 2000s, kicking it around, you know, hiking, shooting stories, there was garbage all over these trails from immigrants who were coming across and discarding trash and, you know, laying up under trees overnight. You could see clothes and garbage everywhere. It's been about 15 years since I've seen any new trash on the smuggling trails because the numbers have dropped so much. Uh, and it has been a gradual and steady decline. And, and so why is there a decline? Well, the economy collapsed in 2008. So some of the jobs went away. But also, you know, a lot of the people that were going to come over have come over and stayed. And, uh, and they don't go back to Mexico anymore and then come back like they used to. Uh, they used to come across in the spring, work all summer, and then go home for the holidays and then come back across. It's become so difficult that they're staying here now. So that's less traffic. But um, but the reality is, is that the number of illegal immigrants crossing the border is at a historic low and has been at this low and declining for the past three presidencies. Uh, That's a story you don't really see um, on national news.
0: One of the things that I'm going to kind of turn a little bit, but I'm going to bring it back. I left there to uh, and I think it was. Two thousand and one to go back to uh, to the south to go back to grad school, and uh, when I left, um, I-, I left right at a time. If I would have stayed one more, I think uh, six months, you and I would have probably gone to Afghanistan together. Um, because I left, and then you went. And I remember being in grad school, being very nervous when you were going to come home and covering that. Talk about going over there to cover that story. Because it was a huge safety issue. Yeah. And then after coming back from covering that, coming back to cover border related stories. And the reason why I bring this up is because you went to a not really a third world country, but you went to a war zone, right? But the American border, Mexican border is now being considered a war zone. Talk about the compare and contrast there a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, the border fluctuates in safety and it fluctuates for a number of reasons. But the main one is, is, you know, is there a drug cartel controlling the traffic? If there's a drug cartel controlling the traffic, it's a safe zone because it is a business, the drug business. If it's two cartels or gangs fighting over a smuggling route, then it's dangerous because they fight, bullets go, you know to unintended targets. So those are that's cyclical. And throughout the last twenty years it's been cyclical here and, and I've crossed and done reporting across the border there during some of those really dangerous times. And I think that you know carrying a hidden camera and hiring a smuggler in Mexico or or going on a ride along with Mexican police during a drug war um, really prepared me for the mindset that it would take to cover the invasion of Iraq which is what I, I covered, um, back in 2003, because, um, I wasn't a reporter from just, you know, regular metropolitan city. I'd been used to being somewhere where you really have to watch your back. You don't go places where, um, you know, that, that might be dangerous. And you learn to listen to that voice in your head that says, "Mm, let's stick close to the group here. Let's not wander off at night and just see if there's a better interview around the corner. it teaches you when you need to be chicken, which is most of the time. Uh, So I I think that that experience on the border really helped me uh, to get the stories that we got uh, when we were covering the invasion. Um, I was only there for a month. I I got pulled out because my life insurance policy had expired. And at that point, journalists had started dying. And The premium had like tripled and my boss called me and and said, hey, if you're not on the helicopter with the 101st Airborne already, we're going to pull you out. And I was not sad about leaving. We'd been there a month. I was exhausted. And it was uh, during the beginning of the war. Troops were about to get to Baghdad. And and at that point, we thought, "Okay, yeah, it's pretty much done. Uh, It was just the beginning of a quagmire. But what we had gone there to cover was over. And then coming back, one of the first stories I did was a story about this unit of smugglers from Mexico that, that were paramilitary. And it ended up being that these were the Zetas. Um, but this was a long time ago. And the Zetas are, uh, are sort of ex-military, ex-police in Mexico. They now are their enforcers for the Gulf drug cartel. I think they're sort of considered their own drug cartel but they were moving into the Sinaloa cartel area. And we went across the border and did a piece. And And I remember getting shaken down by a, a Mexican police officer or commander on the border in Sasabee and just not freaking out. I'd just come back from a war zone and just explaining to him what we were doing. And no, we were not going to go in and pay a bribe. We we're journalists. And he could either be part of the story. He could stay out of the story. It all depended on his actions. I don't think I would have had the confidence to do that had I not come back. And and sure enough, he uh, he said, all right, you got about 20 minutes to get out of this country. <laughs> we, got, we got out in about seven. But, um, but yeah, it that experience on the border and the experience in the Middle East has really molded um, how I work and how I view uh, working in dangerous environments. And you can go across the border here and have a great dinner at a beautiful restaurant with your family, and that's one reality of the border. You can go across like we do sometimes with hidden cameras and we have to look for trouble, and that's a different reality. The, the thing that connects them all is to listen uh, to that voice in the back of your head that says, always looking around and always saying, am I in the right spot? um, how do I get back across the border? Um, you know, what's my goal here and how do I do it the safest that I possibly can? And, uh, yeah. Uh,
0: if I understand correctly, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have sort of a loose connection with Vicente Fox. Is that uh, correct?
1: Yeah, very loose, but I met him. So Vicente Fox is a former president of Mexico. He was the first, um, uh, candidate. Outside of the ruling PRI party to be elected, and I think believe he was elected in, in the year 2000. Um, and I had met him in like 1996 when he was a governor of one of the states, and he was at a, a conference up here where they brought journalists and Mexican political figures together. And he was just this up and coming politician. He was the former head of Coca Cola in Mexico. I mean, he was a smart business guy, but he was a governor. I met him at this conference and had dinner with him one night, and then. A couple of years later, I see the name of this rising star in Mexico running for president. And how do I know that name? Oh, my gosh. I saw his picture and recognized his mustache immediately. And uh, so I interviewed him a couple of times when he was running. And then when he became president, I ran into him in Nogales, Sonora. I told my bosses, if you send me down there, I'll get a one-on-one with the president of Mexico. What? And I just, if I can just get in front of him, he'll remember me. And sure enough, luck had it. We ended up getting a one on one with him. And then I, I recently interviewed him. I was about six months ago, again, when he was working on something new and he was up here in Phoenix. But I think he was the first head of state that I ever interviewed.
0: Well, one of the things that's interesting about Vicente Fox is that I've, you know, I remember you talking about your connection with him and. You know, I follow him on Twitter. He's number one, he's Mm -hmm. hilarious. Uh, And two, he's very outspoken, Um, very outspoken about the border related issues, um, this notion of the institution of the wall. Um, What I would love to hear from you is we we Americans have this perception of what the wall is. Right. You know, it's this thing that blocks them from coming here, you know, and it's big and it's metal. Which I think the the institution of a wall is even more than just the border itself. It's you know even crossing to other countries through airplanes and other stuff. But what is the perception from those that you enter that you engage with on the other side? These ideas of what the wall is. You have Vicente Fox that has his own opinion. We if you go to the other side, especially Nogales, you see all the crosses that are hanging, you know, of all the people that have traveled and they memorialize them. But you don't see that on the American side. Talk about the perception of this wall and what it means and what it's like and how different cultures on that side of the Mexican side
1: view it. You you know, uh, just this past week when we were in Mexico, I asked a lot of people down there what they thought of the the wall. And and now, you know, we have U.S. soldiers down there that are adding barbed wire to the top of the wall. And, you know, I was surprised a majority of the people we spoke to on the south side of the border said they totally understood why there was a wall there and why, you know, that was important to President Trump and a lot of people in the United States. Um, So there is a a bit of an understanding there on the sort of conscious level. I, I think the biggest problem that we run into, and this is what we hear from business people on both sides of the wall, both sides of the border, Is subconsciously that wall with the barbed wire, it's, it is not welcoming. And so it has had and continues to have a negative effect on businesses along the border because Americans see this and they see the barbed wire and they think, why, why would I want to go there? That, that means that it's dangerous. The reality is, is that border communities are often some of the safest communities because there's so many border patrol agents, because, you know, these are just areas where even nefarious border crossers just want to get through and get up to the U.S. These are safe areas, but business, um, you know, tax receipts, sales tax receipts, businesses are really declining on the border. So objectively, a lot of people understand why you would want to put a barrier like that there. But there is a subconscious effect, and that is very negative to the economies near the border because of what the wall symbolizes subconsciously, symbolizes danger, symbolizes keep out, symbolizes why would I want to go there? And and so you have two very different opinions and different realities of what that one thing that is there is and, and what it's doing.
0: What is the wall become i mean you've lived you lived on it when you were a kid yeah and and what is it now how how can you describe that evolution
1: well it got taller um you know
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> physically grew so there,
1: there's also you know there's a there's a perception that the there's no wall on the border there's already a wall it's sort of a fence it's it's hard to describe if you could take like you know, a million metal poles that are about six feet in or six six inches in diameter, metal tubes that stick up about thirty feet in the air and they're placed about three inches apart. So you can kind of see through it, but you can't get through it. Um that is the bulk of what the wall, you know, the fence is around in and around the cities. You get out more into the rural areas, then it's it gets a little shorter and it might be sort of this grating that's maybe 12 feet tall. Then you get out in the middle of nowhere and there are vehicle barrier like what you would imagine was on the shore at Normandy that to prevent tanks and stuff like that from getting across. And it's these welded vehicle barriers together, and the idea is that out there You know, people are going to drive if they're going to cross the border. And at that point, they would have to walk. It's a deterrent because then they'd have to walk, you know, 200 miles to get to anywhere where they could get picked up again. Um, So it's different along the border. That's what it is like today. Um, 30 years ago, when I was a teenager, the wall in a city like Nogales was in the city, you know, there were places where it was just a fence. It was, you know, might have been ten feet tall near the ports of entry. Um, it was much more porous. I mean, people could go back and forth uh, illegally, and uh, often got got caught, often didn't get caught. Uh, but it has definitely, it has definitely changed. And to see the border today with these, the wall, the fence, the barriers, um, it, it, it is totally different. Um, and what's interesting is, is it's gotten so much different at a time when immigration is really at an all-time low. I think, as was with many things with government, uh, it's about 15 to 20 years. It's addressing a 15 to 20-year-old problem uh, that was much worse 15 to 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, it's a big campaign thing, and, and uh, our president now has run on it somewhat successfully for president not so much successfully in the midterms but you know the wall is a new reality the fence is a new reality there's already a fence um, slash wall on much of the border it's not going away you know the question is what do they want to do with it now we're spending a lot of money already on border protection 30 billion dollars last year the the budget for the u.s marine corps is like 27 28 billion dollars we're spending more money on this police force on the southern border of the united states than we spent on the marines um interesting figure because people keep saying you know just you know congress needs to do its job well at this point there's an open check that's been written uh you know there's, there's no end in sight to the money being spent on the border and if you look at it, it largely has been successful. I mean, we're, we're 87% fewer people coming across illegally than were 18 years ago. Um, that story probably hasn't gotten out there uh, as much as it should, um, and as well as the story about how much money are we going to spend? You know, is there a better way to spend $30 billion? You know, maybe they send a billion with some people. With expertise to some of these countries to help them uh, reinvest in their infrastructure so we don't get so many people to come across. So, a lot of potential solutions. Right now, we're really focusing on
0: enforcement. Now, a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcasts is part of a network of shows, and we're looking for your feedback? We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcasts.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. One of the things that I think we can take away from a lot of that discussion, too, is your experience beyond just the typical visual wall. You've been in the tunnels. And how have those changed? Are they gone? Are they still there? Are they still being used? Are they still being dug? And what was it like to report from a safety issue?
1: Yeah, one of the arguments about uh, against having a wall is, you know, you the governor of Arizona, uh, Janet Napolitano, used to say, "You build a twenty-five foot wall, I'll show you someone who's got a twenty-six foot ladder." Um, but there's also, you know, the tunnels that come underneath the wall. You know, the wall is a barrier; it stops the low-hanging fruit from coming across. But there's always a way around, either over or under and and the tunnels are an interesting um phenomenon because they they sort of um ebb and flow and so in the past tunnels so let's take this the two cities of nogalis um there there are two washes that run underneath the cities uh and and there's some grading down under the ground in those washes well in the past they used to go down, smugglers would go down and they would dig tunnels out of those main washes to just get around the border. And then they dig into like the sewer system or the piping system in the United States. And so you'd have this long tunnel that goes under the city. That's this wash. And then you'd have these side tunnels that are dug out sort of smaller ones that might go 20 or 30 feet. And they keep that open for three or four days. They get enough drugs and people. It's already paid for the tunnel and everything else is profit. That's the business model. Um, Those we're seeing less of because of technology on the border. Uh, Border patrol agents have this ground penetrating radar and they can tell if something's different and they use that all the time going across the border. So what we are seeing now more of and more commonly are these like old like mine shaft like the tunnels that make the news you know lighting system oxygen you know fans that blow out a pulley cart system and those are a little farther away from like the ports of entry much more elaborate much more you know deep down underground obviously a lot more expensive to do so it's not a drug gang that builds those it's you know money from a drug cartel the kingpins that are down farther in mexico are funding these and if they get one of those big tunnels dug and it's operating for more than a week, it's already more than paid for itself. And they they do these knowing that the lifespan of a, of a tunnel, once it's dug, if it gets dug successfully, is literally a week to a couple of months if they're lucky. And then it gets caught and shut down. But there's so much money that they make from them that it's worth it. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing... Um, fewer of the smaller tunnels and more of these these big ones or i don't know if we're seeing more of the big ones but we're really only seeing the big ones now i was i had always had a, a sort of a reporting goal i've been in these tunnels before on the u.s side once they get caught you know once they get shut down um sometimes they'll take a reporter or a photographer down just to show what it's like at the entrance i always wanted to go into one from the mexican side Um, and we had been unable to get, um, Mexican authorities to cooperate with us, to, to give us a tunnel, uh, tour. So a year or so ago, a couple years ago, we went down and found one of them and the timing was right. And I got down in there to do a a story, probably not the smartest thing I've ever done. And, And I will tell you, I was sick for about two months afterwards with some lung thing, uh, because the air was so bad down there. But it is, a, you know, the border is one of those places where it's, it's like 10 different places in one. There's what the tourists see. I want to go to the dentist. I'm going to go buy some knickknacks. There's what the police and law enforcement sees, which is a security threat. You know, we've got people on the other side. We don't know their backgrounds and they're trying to get across. It could be law-abiding citizens that just want to work here. they could be terrorists. they could be drug smugglers. That's the law enforcement point of view. And then you've got the uh, sort of illegal entrepreneur point of view, which is okay. We've got this barrier now. How are we going to get our wares across uh, without getting caught? We're going to go over. We're going to use drones. Are we use planes? Are we going to use ladders? Are we going to dig underneath? And and it's this all these different sort of uh, narratives are taking place in plain view, and you wouldn't know, you know, more than one of them depending on what you're there to do. you're there to go to the dentist, that's the only narrative you see. But there are these other ones that are taking place at the, at the same time. It would be a great plot for a movie to have like five different narratives taking place in the same block on the border to show all these different, you know, from the border agent to the Mexican cop to the legitimate business people to the drug smuggler to the tourist and how all those lives just, you just pass each other every day and you'd never know it.
0: Why do you keep on doing these
1: stories? Well, these are interesting stories. I mean, any reporter, you know, covering City Hall is great and it's important and covering, you know, local issues is, is great. And that's sort of what we get paid for, you know, to, to do day in and day out. But getting to go cover something that most, you know, getting a front seat in something that most people don't get to see and it's some of that life on the border. It's just really interesting. Um, it's colorful, it's scary sometimes, it is rewarding sometimes, and it, sometimes it's really depressing. Um, but it is definitely different from what you do day in and day out as a city reporter. Sometimes it's depressing. This last time I came back, I was really having you know witnessed for three days the poverty um, down there. It sort of got to me this time. I, I came back at two in the morning from Being down there for a few days and to my nice little warm house, safe neighborhood. And uh, and I felt a little guilty that I have all this. And I just saw these people that are, you know, sleeping in the street or in this caravan. That's They're trying to get get a new life. Um, But I wouldn't have that a feeling if I wasn't a reporter on the border, if I I wasn't affected by that. And I think it helps me when I talk to just regular people. It's helping my kids who are growing up fairly sheltered here in Phoenix. To understand that there's a different world out there. Um, and so I try to get that across in my reporting as well as in my personal life. That just, you know, there's a, you know, people say there are two sides to every story. There's 50 sides to the border story. And then probably some sides that I haven't covered yet that I would like to.
0: You talked about something that I think many journalists, many, probably even military deal with is how do we bring these stories home and when do we leave them at the door so that we don't expose our families to them? Talk about your experience of managing that. You know, you got family that live on the border, you got daughters and a wife up here in in the United States. How do you compartmentalize that? And what do you expose people to and what do you keep for yourself and how do you manage a lot of that Given the fact that you've got to keep some of it back, but you got to get rid of it somewhere.
1: Yeah, when I get home from work or on a trip like this, you, you mm-hmm. just try to leave what you've seen and what you've done with the day, or what you've interacted at the door. You know, walk in. My job is to be, hey, what's going on? How's it going? That's what I try to put my mindset in. A family may argue that that's not the reality because I think you bring home your work regardless of whether you want to or not but you have to make a conscious decision to leave it at the door and that's just you know personal perspective um, safety perspective sometimes i worry um if we do a story that has a negative impact on a drug gang or something like that that my family on the border uh, because we have the same last name you know could be at risk um but those stories are are fewer and farther between um for the most part, I don't really have much of a safety concern um, for covering that. There's one exception, and that is actually we've done some pieces on some vigilantes who come here uh, to, you know, join militias or create what you call a militia and patrol the border. And some of the pieces that we've done on them have not been received well by them. Uh, and in the back of my mind, I'm always a little concerned about one of these guys deciding to show up here or um, teach that reporter a lesson. Um, but you know for the most part, I am very lucky to be a reporter in the United States because we are very safe here for the most part. My counterparts who actually live in Mexico and work there, Mexico's the most dangerous country in the world for a journalist. So we spent three days down there and I did Facebook posts and updates and Twitter and people like, oh my gosh. That's so dangerous down there really isn't that dangerous for an American journalist. It's very dangerous for a Mexican journalist. So I get to dip my foot into that little dangerous pool a little bit, but it's not really that, um, you know, I'm not really putting my life at risk or my family's life at risk when I report down there. Uh, and it's, it's a sad state of affairs down there that the, my counterparts on the Mexican side, some of whom I know fairly well, are really every day that they do their job, they are, they're putting their lives at risk, whether it's the government not wanting them to report what they're reporting or more often than not, factions in the drug trade um, that get very offended very quickly when you mention them or their organization or you do a story that reflects negatively up- upon them.
0: Why do you teach?
1: Ah, uh, Teach because I've got kids in private school, <laughs> and I'm just a journalist. <laughs> That's the honest answer. But the second answer is is I also enjoy it. I, I like um, you know if I have a, a, a somewhat of an expertise in a subject matter. You know I'm a journalist. I like talking about what I do. So you have a captive audience, and and then the third thing is if I can teach these students a little bit of. Um, what they should do to do their job right, uh, and then they go out and do it right. Well, that's that's you know then I've done something that might last a little longer than my quick story that airs in the five o'clock news.
0: How has reporting changed from the days that you and I were running the border with film, well, videotape, and driving to a station so we can put something on the air, whereas now it's immediate. We can take a, we can do a story on our phone if we want to and edit on our phone and push it up on Facebook. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. And how do you teach those good skills that you learned in J school many years ago to this new up and coming reporters and photographers and, you know, people that are eager to go into this journalistic world where they just want to focus on fast information
1: yeah, the demands are a lot different now. And there are more demands and they are faster demands. That story that you and I went down to, to cover, we hire the smuggler. And even though we got a day to do it, um, we turned it You know, the next day. you know, Nowadays, we'd go down there with some editing gear and a backpack that we could beam our story up. We'd go across the border, we'd shoot it. I'd be tweeting about what I'm doing, putting up Little videos on Facebook teasing to the newscast, writing a web story as we go. We get back across the border and we would edit, you know, three different versions of it, or we'd edit it in three parts. And then I would do seven live shots that night, you know, and we'd do the story that day. And that's, you know, that's what we did the last three days in Mexico. Um, you know, seven different hits in seven different newscasts on two different TV stations. And then an email from the The web people, where's our web story? Uh, So the demands are are more and they're faster. Um, And oftentimes, you know, reporters are out there then now by themselves. They shoot and they write and they edit and they report as a one-man band. Um, And so the demands on them are a little are are even more. Um, The positive thing of the one-man band is they can't expect you to do seven live shots if you're with a one-man band. So generally, then you'll have one story. So that's actually okay. Uh, But if you have a photographer, and and you're out as a team, you can expect to be reporting, you know, five or six versions of the same story that day. And it's a quick turnaround. And, um, and and there are techniques to do that more successfully than others and try to teach that to my students and some of my coworkers. But it is it is tough. I was exhausted when we got back from the border turning so many pieces so quickly. Um, and the, the, the opportunity to make mistakes are a little higher, um, because you're, you don't get to sit and think, all right, how do I start this story? What's the most important thing? All right, what would I, let me mull this over. It is sitting down and writing and then editing and sending back. And then maybe 20 minutes later going, was that that person's name or what was their main point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely different.
0: Last question, and then we'll start wrapping this up. But Arizona is, at the time when I was there, um, was the flagship station for Meredith um, so uh, for KPHO. And so we knew everything that we did would be picked up by all of our sister stations across the country. Businesses have changed there. But in essence, you're still a local reporter, but you are touching a wide net across all the stations that are connected to you, but why is local reporting like what you do still so very, very important, especially in this age of this concept that we keep on hearing fake news and this news and unbiased and not balanced and all this. Why is local reporting like that you do every day on an investigative side so important?
1: Well, this is the only way people are going to hear about their communities. Um, You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the network news and the cable news, they're all doing very well. They don't report on what the city council's doing here. They don't report on a problem in the police department, you know, how um, police are dealing with the increase in mental health, um, you know, uh, dangerous people with mental health issues and guns. You know, that's something that only local news. Does and and so, as newspapers as we knew them have have sort of um, not died off, but some of them have died off. But they're getting less impactful, fewer staff. Um, you know, TV news has become a little more important because uh, it is a way for people in their community to understand what's happening outside of their neighborhoods, and really the only way. and And I think that's why TV news is not going away. Um, newspapers are evolving they're becoming online but they have less readership um it's just it's an invaluable thing in a community is to have journalists in a healthy competition among journalists to see who can get the best scoop because the the viewer and the reader benefit and uh, there's a reason why this is the only industry that is protected by the constitution and the first amendment it's because our democracy and our government can't um, exist and run in a somewhat, you know, successful manner without this oversight. And so that's, that's our job. And hopefully it will continue to be a viable business model because this isn't a nonprofit, you know, job. This is a, a job where businesses have to be able to own companies and there has to be an incentive to make money to have reporters like me go to Mexico and, and cover this. You have to be able to sell ads. People need to watch it. So I'm hopeful that this business model isn't going away.
0: My close friend, man that was in my wedding, colleague, sometimes a cigar smoking buddy. um, It is great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for your time.
1: Oh, It's great to talk to you, Bobby. Always great conversation with you, whether we're being recorded or just shooting, (laughs) shooting
0: the bull. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.